Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 135th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is visual thinking is philosophical thinking. I'm joined by Mark Staff Brandel. He is the author of A Philosophy of Visual Metaphor in Contemporary Art. The publisher is Bloomsbury Academic. Mark is an artist and art historian with a PhD from the University of Zurich. He is an associate professor of art history emeritus at the Art Academy of Liechtenstein and Higher Professional College for Art in St. Gallen, Switzerland. His work has been shown in numerous galleries and museums from Europe, America, Egypt, and elsewhere. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hi, thank you. It's nice to be here. Absolutely. So let's uh, get people oriented. Uh, in a nutshell, what's this book about? Okay, it's uh, there's it's about visual metaphor, but this can become very because it's in a philosophy series. It can have too much jargon, but I'll do my best. My best. What I would say is that my point is, and the book is, metaphors are the foundation of visual thought, are chiefly determined by bodily and environmental experiences and then are then resourcefully embodied in artistic form. In short, visual artistic creation is philosophical thought, as you just said, accomplished through original metaphor embodiment. So what it all leads up to this whole thing is you go from experience in life and so on. You get insights. These are then in metaphors in your brain, uh, which includes emotions and also thought. That goes to experience in the form process and materials and so on of the artwork, thus is re-embodied creatively, not illustrated, but that's my whole point. Thinking okay. Is, yeah. Well, I, I'm a poet, so as you can imagine, I'm interested in metaphors. Um, so I have, once back in the day, I have a master's in creative writing from Brown University on the East Coast. So Poetry is the closest to visual. It's, it's really close, yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm going to open with, before we get into some of the nuts and bolts, you have um, some some large statements that you make in the course of the book. And I wanted to tap into two or three of these and give you a chance to kind of unpack them or elaborate on them so that uh, listeners have an idea where you're coming from. So so one of them that, that caught my attention was, you say at one point, the academics were trapped in an illusionary, illusionary past. Formalist modernists felt delusionally free from the past, and the deconstructivist postmodernists sometimes appear endlessly tangled in an inescapable present. Uh, that's a quite interesting comment, and it goes lots of directions. Uh, so, can you elaborate on that? Explain it a bit for us. Well, the main one of the main things is is that my book is actually kind of controversial. Uh, somebody told me I was lucky; I already was well enough known as an artist and a. Uh, and had my professor jobs, although I'm retired, thank God, um, because I would have trouble getting it because right now most things are post-modern. Uh, their hegemony is is, is uh, text-based. They believe the basis of all thought is language. And so they are stuck in the present, I would say. They try and ignore the past and so on. The academicists, that was just one group of artists before modernism, um, they or just stuck on the past. They only want to do historical painting and religious painting as you know, they couldn't seem to do the present. That was modernism was a revolt against that to do the present, but modernists towards the end got stuck in uh, that too. So you have your people will get one direction or the other. And of course, my point is that you have to, th- you got to have the past. I'm an art historian, but it's a, it's something to use as media um, to then deal with, Let's think about the future and deal with the present to see if we can make the future better. Yeah, well, you you, you mentioned in, in giving your answer that uh, it's a controversial book, and yes, it certainly struck me as I read it that you weren't afraid to to make um, bold statements, um, which I welcome. It, it's more interesting. So let me go to another one of those in regards to the Western art canon or art history canon, you said that in some hands, at least, uh, what we have now is a shrunken paucity of visual aids to solipsistic fear. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That is an equally strong comment. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to explain what you're about with that remark. That's my attack on the post-structuralists again. uh, They they will just do things like say, oh, you can't really teach the past well, this is have, could be a long answer, but I'll try and keep it short. That um, you know, so we should just ignore the whole thing. No, the thing is, right now, art history, and I say this a lot when I do my Dr. Great Art presentations. It's not wrong, but it's far from the entire truth. Far, far. And so people will say, "Oh, there's this like." Well, then let's not teach any. No, you need to know it now and more. So you learn the standard art history, and then that's only European and American. And where are the women? And where are the black people? And where is Africa? And where is, you know, et cetera. And so um, essentially, that's my attack on that is you, you need to do all that and not uh, um, not get, you know, I get stuck with saying, okay, well, then I won't teach history at all. I'll just look at, you know, illustrate my philosophical theory. Art historians and philosophers, of which I am also one, but I'm also an artist, can be dangerous because they start to want art to say, to illustrate their ideas. And no, art is itself, and then our ideas should help us try and understand art. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I have a PhD, and I did a very contemporary topic, and it was 
hard to put together a committee because, as I joke to my friends, uh, scholars prefer dead artists rather than living artists because the living artists can potentially contradict them, um, and, and they don't welcome that. Uh, let's go on to one other uh, statement you made here, which I, I thought was interesting and uh, gets into uh, some different camps that are involved. You say that connoisseurs are regrettably almost gone, critics sliding into relevancy, uh, art historians under pressure from theorists, curators, and creative philosophers. And then you mentioned that uh, one very powerful group, collectors, often don't uh, uh, get acknowledged as part of the discourse, but they're obviously a big player. Um, so you got all those groups vying to uh, kind of help define the landscape. I want to give you a chance to say a bit more about, about that particular part. Well, that'd be so hard. That's only sort of a side issue to my book, which is actually about how artists think visually. But I can't not be polemical because I exist in the art world and I exist pretty well, but I'm also pretty cranky. At the uh, um, Essentially, a lot of things have shifted. The curators took over the art world in, in about 1985. Um, the gallerists have been sort of pushed into of no importance. Critics have totally faded away, partially their own darn fault um so just the whole thing and and collectors are actually i was brilliant actually too nice to them the real collectors have tended to fade away too and been replaced by um speculators so the art world is very unhealthy it's in a transitional period though it's it's very similar to mannerism or academicism i would say we're in a transition before postmodernism we need a new something after that. It's like between the Renaissance and the Baroque. Um, the next thing will not be a return to modernism, but will be something new. But of course, there's bigger things to solve than art. We have to solve things like, um, uh, you know, economic situations and so first, but art's part of it. Yeah. yeah okay. No, that's fair enough. And I, I think redefining the collectors as speculators in lots of cases is is true to the mark of what's going on. So um, one of the reasons when you, you reached out to me with the book, I was intrigued because, as I mentioned, I'm a poet, but it's also because Metaphors We Live By is, is on my bookshelf uh, by Lackoff and Johnson, uh, one of my all-time favorites. So um, as we dive into into your book, um, do you want to talk about that book maybe a little bit? And you also had mentioned uh, Noel Carroll and uh, a groundbreaking essay on visual metaphor. So I want to kind of now move in closer to metaphor itself and get to some of the antecedents that uh, were probably influential for you. And you're not just honoring them. You're also obviously coming with your, your own angle on these things. Okay. I'm, I'm very... Um much based in Lakofian cognitive metaphor theory, which is actually uh, Johnson and Turner even better in some ways in the dire my direction. But anyway, so, since you know it, I don't know if I have to explain it to a lot of people because it sits somewhere between analytic philosophy and um, post-structuralism. And actually, I see it as an expansion. Uh, Lakoff sees himself as a bit of a, a reaction against analytic philosophy, but I think he actually expanded it. I think it's more of a reaction against post-structuralism. Um, yeah, what can we say about that? Uh, um, I'm mixing all three, actually, in many ways. Um, the main thing is that what Lakoff and, and all his followers, including me and stuff, is they have real scientific studies to prove these things. It's not just armchair philosophizing. And they have things usually very appreciated by poets, which makes me trust it more. Uh, the, uh, 
Yeah, that book is one that started my whole thought and helped me get out of certain problems I had. Um, and so, but anyway, they're saying that metaphors are embodied, that mental concepts are constructed tropaically from bodily experiences, that uh, these are then, um, well, I'm saying these are the tool and a goal. Who else I say? Noel Carroll. I'll go more into cognitive metaphor afterwards, I suppose. But uh, Carroll is the only one who's done anything about visual um, metaphor. I have, I like his theories about lots of things. I've read all his books. He has one essay. It's the only one really called Visual Metaphor. So my book is actually the first full book. There are books that are kind of handbooks for advertising and so on, but not dealing with creativity and not really going deep into the Lakofian or cognitive metaphor aspect. So there's the combination. But yeah, Noel Carroll, I even have in one of my drawings that's a frontispiece there is kind of the patron saint of one chapter. Um what can we say about Lakoff? He says we experience things bodily and that that is then the basis, he and his people, for our thought processes. And out of that, out of basic metaphor or trope, actually, if I would use the correct word, it goes then in different directions, only one of which is language. And I would hope that my thing, my book opens up a whole new field where people would also then go on and talk about how this applies to dance and music and other stuff, because I think it would work, but I don't know enough about that. I had to limit it. Can't dance at all. Um, yeah, yeah. The, Car- the Carol book does, in fact, if I understand correctly, hit on painting, sculpture, photography, theater, video. I mean, it goes lots of directions, but it's it's an essay as opposed to a book. Yeah, it's so- one chapter, but it's, it's amazingly great. He did I'm taking a little bit of an exception with it only to the extent where I'm expanding it in a way is he tends to deal like most philosophers with things primarily based on the subject matter. So he's always talking about um, things that are basically surrealist or something. Yeah, well, they're easier to describe. And then you say, here's a metaphor between this and that. And I think it's in the form. I think, and so I talked a lot about abstract art in my book, although I am not an abstract artist, because I believe it works that way too. Thus the implications for music and so on. That for instance, my one of my key insights that led me to write this was I realized that this is not abstract, but it's semi-abstract, is that Vincent van Gogh turned the paint stroke into a little flame and that which 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 i absolutely loved one of my favorite parts of the book yeah it's the one of the clearest because i think he's one of the clearest painters he's a great thinker it's not just a feeler but he also feelers he he invented uh, painting your feelings um the um uh, but since it's a flame he accesses all those foundational metaphors of flame heat and passion and all those things so it's in the form and then he he became pervasive he extended it to flame-like form forms of of composition and flame like forms of the buildings and so on. and I do this to some fully abstract artists like Dan yeah, and, and, the, and the cypress trees literally seem like a flame yeah um, yeah they're one of the best ones yeah yeah and, and so you see the whole how that then becomes pervasive in a great artist like Van Gogh or, or James Joyce or or, or whatever. And, uh, and, and other ones can be great too, but they're so pervasive. It's amazing. So I do extend Carol in, and make a big deal out of that. I see it in the formal aspects, which for me, and that's why I have that pun word in there. Cause I'm a, I'm bad at that is metaphor. And then with an M at the end, because it doesn't work in German, but it work because metaphor in German is metaphor, but it works well because it's meta formal 
but also a metaphor. And so in a certain way, I'm turning formalism on its head. I'm actually attacking it. I'm saying, though, that form is the most important thing often, but it's because it contains, it embodies content. Okay. Um, speaking of content, because um, we, we've got the, the, the medium and we've got the content, and uh, they're both rich for exploration here. Uh, but I'll, I'll stay with the form for a moment. So um, you, you mentioned that visual metaphors are not identical to literary metaphors. And then if we switch over to content in the same question that I'm posing to you just to confuse you, um, we, when we're talking about visual metaphors in art versus advertising, because you mentioned Barbara Phelps had written a book about visual metaphor in advertising. So I'm interested in, in visuals both in art versus advertising, and I'm interested in the contrast of visual metaphors as opposed to literary metaphors. So kind of a two-part question. Well, the um, it's just different. I wouldn't say it's like better, but I did have people say, oh, well, then visual metaphors are just sort of like illustrations, pictures of that you could say better in a sentence. But you as a poet will know that. That's nonsense. Uh, poetry is is also so complex. It's not just sentences. You can't rephrase it. The um, so oh about about design first. I have a whole podcast I did about that. Design is just simpler. It's it ha- has no multivalency. It's not polysemic, um, and 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 art and poetry and literature and so are all polysemic. That's what makes them so good. They have many layers of meaning, and so that's much more complex. Design is much simpler, and, and sometimes it's stronger for that. It's one iconic shout, and, uh, and but uh, yeah, it's not complex, you know. And and so that's where I make the difference with that. And there's so many books about that. Um, what was the other part? Was about um, comparison to uh, between art and advertising. And yeah, so I did cover that. That's the difference. Is it's just I want to say well, I'm looking here at creative use of metaphors, not just oh this can be that. Yeah, up is more positive and so on. But then nah, it's like a handbook, you know. My my point is always that they're they're intertwined. The um the form and the content are actually in each other because it's embodied. That you know, so that. You can't I like, really I like, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. Form and content are in each other. Yeah. And so uh, I think I, I said somewhere that they are, con, you know, that they're, well, anyway, they're intertwined and I can't remember exactly. I had a better way of saying it there. And, and, and the matter of fact, in the process too, because you often discover, that's how you discover, you know, like throwing spaghetti against the wall to see if it sticks and it doesn't stick. Then you do it again. And so you discover your metaphors you don't just apply them. You discover them in your processes and so on, and then you change them. And so it keeps going. And I, I wrote in there once because somebody asked me about this sort of criticism. I said, well, that sounds like a blind man like tapping his way along while also inventing the stick. And I said, yeah, not, uh, not, yeah. yeah, that is. That's what I think it is. Yes. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat and heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, I mean, the, the poet Robert Frost said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. I mean, it is a di- discovery. Uh, I never wrote anything good that didn't surprise me. Uh, otherwise, it's, it's essentially stillborn. So before we run out of time here, I want to get to a couple other things. Um, one is back to Van Gogh and uh, that he kind of, you know, this flame uh, element in his art. Are there other kind of metaphorical summaries like that? Um, you know, Van Gogh, Van Gogh and the flame, uh, but uh, different that you could apply for other artists, you know, whether it's Magritte or Picasso. Well, Rimbach, I think, you, you I think choose. All, all the great ones. And that's what I tried to do. And I did uh, one whole chapter on uh, a couple of living artists. Well, one just died, but they're younger than me. Um, but those really quick, Van Gogh, so you can say Van Gogh, Amer- Americans say Van Gogh and the British say Van Gogh and the French say Van Gogh and we art historians have decided because it actually would be Van Gogh and we can't do it so we try and and somewhere in between. Um, but his is so clear. That's why. Yeah. And at the same time, you have Cezanne with building block like strokes. And yeah, I like that one. Structure. Yep. And yeah, he's building. Um, you've got lots of people like that. Um, I, I think pretty much everybody that you, you have, uh, and, and some can be, and in the postmodern time, you have extremely complex ones like uh, Charles Bucci that I talk about. Um, he, he does like geometric things, and then you expect, okay, yeah, it's going to be like Moxville or whatever, and it's going to be ma- primary colors, and he uses extremely unprimary colors. So it's, it's a unification of the uh, something that was... Um, hated in modernism which is referential color but in this totally non-referential structure so he you know the postmodernists can tend to use more mixed up and therefore more complex versions but yeah i think there's lots of them who else could i say that's off the top of my head that's a clearer one well Cezanne is pretty clear um yeah a lot of people where the stroke is the basic thing and that's modernism is clearer and postmodernism is a bit more complex because it can even be the presentational form or you know in the found object and all those things but i think it's still all there his his was the one that just was my insight yeah oh, yeah no, no, it, it works really it works really well there i, I was curious this might um be an off the mark sort of question, but I'll throw it out there anyway and take the chance. Um, do you see, have you tracked these kind of core metaphors, speaking of Van Gogh still and et cetera? I'm curious if you've seen them vary by era or by country or by movement. I mean, at one point you're talking about life as a journey and we're kind of into talking about uh, medieval early Renaissance art 
and uh, you know, journey to the promised land, literally, figuratively. But I was curious as as you looked over eras and movements, because I know you like to create charts, and you've been very interested in in the passage of of uh, you know art history over the centuries, if you had any answer to that question or we yeah, should just yeah, abandon I think it. A lot. I mean, I, I taught the survey mostly. Um, so, uh, I mean, and I still do a Dr. Gradar presentation where I do the entire history of art, 60,000 years in an hour and a half. And it's of course kind of amusing. And I do also the one only women. Um, so now I lost track because I started to do my advertising. About <laughs> the time. Yeah. I think my theory it's sort of this agonistic thing, a little bit Harold Bloom, where artists do it on a more personal level. I think since the Renaissance, it holds now. I only cover contemporary art, and that's mostly postmodern, but I also do a little modern because Van Gogh and so on. But the uh, um, and and some late modernists, um, um, like Bill Conger. But the uh, uh, I think it goes all the way back to the Renaissance. Now, before that, I think it was more cultural. So you probably had groups of people doing it. But yes, I suspect it goes way back. But exactly how individual or how group is it changes. And I think primarily it has to do with people trying to find metaphors to express what they think is important. And that is a cultural aspect. So that's one of the things we would have to do now to get out of postmodernism and modernism is look more at at things like democracy in art and so on. What would that be metaphorically and so on? And so uh and, and I, I I think that it um it does happen at all the times and stuff. It's just depending uh sort of how expanded it is or how how similar in modernism of course almost everything was individualistic and we still cling to that. But Sure. What, one last question here before we, we wrap up. Um, you cite Cornell West, who I, I like very much, and you, I guess uh, prophetic pragmatism is the, the handle or label for it, but it had four elements, and I'm particularly interested in the last two. They first two were discernment and connection. Last two were tracking hypocrisy and hope. Now, hope is obviously emotional. Uh, tracking hypocrisy makes me think of the emotion contempt that you don't trust or respect something, that there is indeed hypocrisy involved. And kind of related to those two things, hypocrisy and hope, uh, you say there's an overemphasis on irony that is dominating contemporary visual art. So I want to make sure this last question brought us into contemporary art, because that's, after all, the, the focus of your book and uh, whatever wherever you want to take that question or that uh, lead in. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Cause I'm really actually in a certain sense, I'm, I'm proselytizing for, Hey, let's get out of it. You can't just stop people. Are, okay. It's not okay. Then we'll stop. No, you have to work your way through things. And so we're learning something and there's going to be a post postmodernism. We artists call postmodernism POMO. So I always laugh because I think, well, post postmodernism, POPOMO, it sounds like a bad dance or something, but the, uh, um, yeah, Cornell is very inspirational to me and uh, keeps me hopeful, actually. He calls it prophetic pragmatism. I would probably call it philosophical pragmatism. We are both philosophical pragmatists based on William James and, and Dewey and so on. Um, his point about that, yeah, I think you, you have to criticize and and then you have to work towards what could be good. I mean, the most important emotion, I think, is hope. And as I matter of fact, I think all really good points of culture have been based on hope. People will say, well, you needed like a, um, a crisis. And it's like, no, it was after the crisis when there was partial solutions 
almost always. And people start to go, well, you know, but it could get better in this way. And that that's when you have flowering. I mean, I saw that to a small extent. I'm old enough that I was involved with the anti-war movement and so on. And it was a bad time, you know, fighting police in the streets and so on. But there was feminism started, the the civil rights moves that we, we were like, wow, but it's probably going to get better, although it's terrible. It didn't actually. It got worse. But the hope, I saw that as like a miniature version probably of the Renaissance where they were like, hey, we could solve things, humanism and so on. You know, so I think hope is the most important thing. It is hard, though. I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I ask my students when I talk about that always, how many of you really feel hope about the future? And almost nobody does. They feel that they can work to get through it and so on, and we can still do good stuff, but they don't have really hope. And I have to say, neither do I, but it's not just because I'm an old fart. It's also they don't, and it's our times. But I think we have to work through that. And that's Cornell's thing is how do we engender hope? How do we convince people not to kill themselves is one of his phrases. Yeah, no, well, I think particularly in the black community, historically, given the adversity, uh, you know, as Jesse Jackson always said, keep hope alive because it's it's that fundamental life lifeline emotionally to uh, try to stay creative and try to stay positive. And otherwise, what do you do? Surrender to fear? That's anger. Yeah. Those, those surrender are not- even which I think a lot of people would like us to do surrender to NUE or, or, or just that kind of things. No, do stuff and we'll do our best. And, and you'll say, well, it could be like, you know, you'll go down in flames. Somebody said that to me once in my president. I go, yes, I probably will. <laughs> but I, I but will. You, you, yeah, but your point was you said irony is dominating, oh, and sorry. dominating sounds yeah not productive. So uh, I assume you're seeing irony as a bit of a, a, a I don't know. I want to go this far, a cheap out to to hope instead. I don't know yeah, how you want. Yeah, definitely I do. As a matter of fact, I love irony and I use it a lot. But it has dominated postmodernism. It is really. A, um, uh, I'm thinking in German all of a sudden, Feigling, it's cowardice. And um, yeah, if you can't do anything else, then you can attack something, you know, and, and haha, we're so cool, you know. Uh, there's so much of that, like a uh, Catalan taping a banana to the wall. It, it's what a friend of mine calls tee hee hee art because curators like to, ha ha ha, we get it, nobody else does. You know, so this irony has, we've got stuck in it. A little bit of irony is important, but it should be self irony should make fun of yourself and the um because then you really reach the point and until we break that the back of that unproductive application of that now unproductive metaphor there's a million other metaphors to to use there's and i'm particularly interested in metalepsis which is playing metaphors off other metaphors so you're trying to critique past metaphors so lakov says like well why are all the metaphors for marriage based on war why can't we make a culture <laughs> like based on a mutual work of art which is just as difficult but you're not trying to kill your husband or wife you know so um we have to work on other metaphors and i think primarily to engender hope and i find that the most difficult but i think yeah. it's what we need to do Okay, well, I think that's an excellent place to to lead the conversations. I think that's you know a near 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 and dear uh, message that you wanted to deliver, um, and I'm glad we could do that here. So I'll uh, just kind of wrap things up for everybody. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Mark Staff Brandel. He is the author of A Philosophy of Visual Metaphor in Contemporary Art. 
This has been episode 135. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. As listeners know, I like to conclude with an episode, uh, every episode with an epigram that I find appropriate. In this case, I took one from Paul DeMond, who said, metaphors are much more tenacious than facts. I love that. (laughs) Until next time, take care and be well. Thank Thank you, Mark. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.